You know success when you see it. Or you think you do. The people in the spotlight. But what about those small business masterminds who succeed at making their money work harder? They do that by having a business bank account with QuickBooks Money, which now earns 5% annual percentage yield. Making your money work as hard as you do? That's how you business differently. Learn more about QuickBooks Money at quickbooks.com slash 5APY. Banking services provided by Green Dot Bank. Member FDIC. Only funds and envelopes earn APY. APY can change at any time. You know, it can be hard to see the challenges that people we work with every day are going through. Invisible struggles like stress and burnout, caregiving for a loved one, or being misunderstood. But insight, awareness, and empathy will help us better see the issues they're dealing with. And that can make us and our companies healthier, too. I'm Holly Robinson-Pete. Join us on The Visibility Gap, a new podcast presented by Cigna Healthcare. Download it wherever you get your podcasts. This is Bloomberg Law with June Grosso from Bloomberg Radio. It's one of the most watched, most discussed, and perhaps most feared cases of the Supreme Court term, with serious implications for elections and democracy. The court is considering a novel and far-reaching argument that would give state legislatures virtually unchecked power in making rules for congressional and presidential elections, essentially without any oversight from state courts. The Supreme Court has never adopted what is known as the independent state legislature theory, and the liberal justices like Elena Kagan warned about the consequences, saying it would eliminate the normal checks and balances. It would say that legislatures could enact all manner of restrictions on voting, get rid of all kinds of (coughs) voter protections that the state constitution, in fact, prohibits. Uh, It might allow the legislatures to insert themselves, to give themselves a role in the certification of elections. The three most conservative justices voiced support for the theory as they had in a prior case. Here's Justice Samuel Alito. So there's been a lot of talk about the impact of this decision on democracy. Do you think that it furthers democracy to transfer the political controversy about districting from the legislature to elected Supreme Courts? But three conservative justices who may control the outcome in the case, Chief Justice John Roberts and Justices Brett Kavanaugh and Amy Coney Barrett, expressed skepticism. Here are the Chief Justice and Justice Kavanaugh. Vesting uh, the power to veto the actions of the legislature significantly undermines the argument that it can do whatever it wants. Your position seems to go further than Chief Justice Rehnquist's position in Bush v. Gore, where he seemed to acknowledge that state courts would have a role interpreting state law. Joining me is constitutional law professor Stephen Vladek of the University of Texas Law School. Steve, this case is about redistricting in North Carolina, but the real discussion in the three hours of oral arguments was about this independent state legislature theory. Explain what it is. It's a very textual theory, textual and not contextual theory, about two different provisions of the Constitution, about Article 1, Section 4, 
which gives to the, quote, legislature, unquote, of a state the power to fix the time, place, and manner for federal elections. And then there's similar language in Article 2, Section 1, that leaves it to the, quote, legislature, unquote, of a state to fix the manner for choosing presidential electors. And the basic gist of the theory is that in both of these places where the U.S. Constitution uses the word legislature, it means the legislature and only the legislature, so that, for example, a state Supreme Court is powerless to strike down an action by the state legislature on the ground that maybe it violates the state constitution. In other words, that the reference to the legislature of the state in both of those provisions is to the exclusion of anyone else in the state, to the exclusion of state constitutional law, so that whatever the legislature goes when it comes to federal elections is the rule. This idea was in the concurring opinion of three conservative justices in the 2000 Bush v. Gore case. Is that the first time this was seriously suggested? Did this come out of whole cloth? I mean, there are allusions to the idea in an older Supreme Court case called McPherson. But yeah, I mean, it really is Bush versus Gore when this becomes in vogue. And, you know, June, Bush versus Gore is instructive because from the perspective of the conservative justices, the real sin in Bush versus Gore was that the Florida Supreme Court, the Democratic controlled Florida Supreme Court, kept invalidating things that the legislature had provided for on the ground that it violated the Florida Constitution. Now, this is where this starts getting kind of complicated and controversial, because, June, we usually think that when it comes to the meaning of a state constitution, the state Supreme Court gets the last word, right? It's kind of odd to think that the federal constitution actually is relevant in telling us what the state constitution means. Tell us about the case before the court over the redistricting in North Carolina. So, you know, this is actually a offshoot of a 2019 case by the Supreme Court called Rucho. In 2019, the Supreme Court said that federal courts generally lack the ability to consider challenges to congressional district maps on the ground that they are partisan gerrymanders. And so what that did is it pushed partisan gerrymandering litigation into state courts. So in Moore versus Harper, the case the Supreme Court is hearing, the North Carolina legislature drew congressional district maps in a way that the North Carolina Supreme Court said violated the state constitution. Basically, the North Carolina Supreme Court read into the North Carolina Constitution a ban on partisan gerrymandering of the likes the North Carolina legislature engaged in. And what the challengers are asking the U.S. Supreme Court to do is to say that once the North Carolina legislature drew the map, that was it. There was nothing more that the North Carolina Supreme Court could do, even if the North Carolina Supreme Court was of the view that the maps violated the state constitution. Did it seem to you at the oral arguments there were three camps of justices, the three liberals who were firmly against this theory, the three conservatives who are farthest to the right who were in favor of it, and then the three justices in the middle who seem to be in the middle? <laughs> I think that's right, Gene. I mean, I think there have been concurring opinions in the last couple of years where at least four justices have expressed some modicum of support for the independent state legislature theory. But I think what we saw at the argument is that there really are only three who are all the way in on what really would be a radical rewriting of federalism, of how we understand the Constitution to structure the relationship between the federal government and the state. So I don't think we're going to end up with five votes for either of the extreme possibilities, that is to say, either five votes to in 
endorse the extreme version of the independent state legislature theory or five votes to categorically reject it. What's much less clear to me is whether there are going to be five votes for any version of the theory. And of course, then the question is, you know, what's the space in the middle? You know, is it that there are five or more votes for some coherent middle ground, or is it that the court fractures? And, you know, there are three votes to get rid of the doctrine altogether. And then you have this plurality opinion from the chief and Kavanaugh and Barrett that has some awkward, blurry line for the future. Because once you cross the line, once you say that there are circumstances in which just the literal reference to the legislature in the federal constitution disempowers state Supreme Court in any circumstance. You know, I think that's a pretty dangerous road to go down. So what did you hear from the justices in the middle, the Chief Justice and Justices Kavanaugh and Barrett? What did you hear in their questions? So, I mean, I think I heard, you know, a combination of both abstract support for the idea that there ought to be some limit on state Supreme Court when it comes to the rules for federal elections, but also June hesitation, right, about what it would mean if they went all the way to where the challengers want them to go to where I think Thomas Alito and Gorsuch are willing to go. And so I think the question is, is there some tenable middle ground that actually would allow them to find a way to impose what from their perspective are adequate limits on state Supreme Court that wouldn't open the door to basically the radical rewriting of federalism that the challengers are pushing for. And June, one possibility, and this was mentioned by former Solicitor General Don Varelli during the argument, one possibility is just to say that it's not the word legislature that constrains state Supreme Courts when it comes to federal elections. It's other parts of the Constitution. It's the due process clause, right? It's, it's the equal protection clause, that if we're really worried about state Supreme Court acting in ways that are arbitrary or capricious when it comes to federal elections, the way to fix that is to recognize that as a due process violation, not to disempower the state Supreme Courts from acting in the first place. And I think the million dollar question to me coming out of that oral argument is whether there are five votes for that idea. Justice Kagan said that in three recent rulings, the Supreme Court accepted that state courts weigh in on state election laws. So where would following precedents take the court here? I think the precedents are generally on the side of letting the state Supreme Court apply the state constitution as it chooses to do so. You know, the problem, June, is the problem that we have with a court that is, I think, less bound by precedent than its predecessor. I think we're at a point with the Supreme Court where there are a majority of justices who see precedent, you know, the way that a drunk sees a lamppost, right, as support, not as illumination. And so I don't think stare decisis is going to decide this case. I don't think text is going to decide this case. So I think the real question is, are the justices in the so-called middle you know, the chief and Kavanaugh and Barrett, sufficiently terrified of the position that the challengers are advocating? Are they sufficiently mollified by the notion that other constitutional provisions can be used to constrain state courts from behaving truly badly? And, you know, June, there are these remarkable amicus briefs in this case. I mean, there's an amicus brief in this case that was signed by the chief justices of all 50 states. When have we seen that before? So I think the attention that's been paid to this case, the work that's been done on it, probably gets us to a point where there are not five votes to embrace a broad version of the independent state legislature theory. But even if there are five votes to embrace a narrow version of it, that would be a remarkable departure from how we've understood the U.S. Constitution and its relationship to state constitution. I mean, frankly, since the founding. So as a professor, if you just look at the text of the Constitution, 
What's your analysis of the text and this theory? Well, I think we've got to be careful about the text. I mean, yes, the text says legislature, but the question is, what does that mean? So, you know, June, for example, Article 1, Section 8 of the Constitution repeatedly refers to Congress. No one has ever argued that when the Constitution refers to Congress, it means Congress with no judicial review, um, right? It means Congress to the exclusion of all other actors. So the text, I think, doesn't do a very good job of telling us whether the reference to the legislature in Article 1, Section 4, Article 2, Section 1 were meant to be exclusive. The other piece of this, and I think this is where the history really cuts against the challengers and really, I think, sort of supports the narrowest possible compass for the doctrine. You know, June, as you know, when the Constitution was being debated in the fall and winter of 1787, 1788, You know, the anti-federalist biggest opposition to the Constitution was that it gave the federal government way too much power to restructure state governance, sort of to override, right, the traditional prerogatives of the state. It would be pretty shocking if the federal Constitution, as it was originally written, restructured the separation of powers of every single state by giving the legislature dominance over the state Supreme Court, June, and no one noticed and, you know, one of the most remarkable pieces of all the briefings in this case, you know, there's this line of briefing by the challengers that relies on a document called the Pinckney Plan, which purports to show some acknowledgement of this idea at the founding. It turns out that document is a fake, you know, that the document on which they're relying doesn't exist, or it exists, but it wasn't authentic, and that even if contemporaries knew it wasn't authentic. So I think the length one has to go to to think that this was what the founders intended or to think that it's the natural reading of the text are just further reasons why, you know, I'm much more partial to the state Supreme Court position in this case and why I think the more liberal justices probably have this right. Is this basically the theory that Rudy Giuliani and other Trump lawyers like John Eastman, who I believe wrote a brief in this case supporting the independent state legislature theory, is this the theory they espouse to try to invalidate the 2020 presidential election? So yes and no. I mean, the Trump team by you know November and December of 2020 June, we're offering any and every theory you can think of. And in most states, the sort of the, the linchpin of the arguments had nothing to do with the relationship between the state legislature and the state Supreme Court. The place where we saw this argument most overtly in 2020 was in Pennsylvania, where the state Supreme Court, interpreting the state constitution, ruled that the state should count timely sent but late received mail-in ballots. Basically, that if you mailed your mail-in ballot by election day and it was received by Friday, the state Supreme Court ruled that those should be counted. The legislature had provided otherwise. The legislature had provided there was a receipt deadline of election day. And so that's a good example of where the, the independent state legislature doctrine would make a difference. What's really important to those who are wondering about how this affects 2020 is Pennsylvania Republicans have long since conceded that even if the state Supreme Court had been overruled, even if the late arriving mail-in ballots had not been counted in 2020, President Biden still would have won Pennsylvania. So, you know, this is one of the kitchen sink arguments that Trump and his supporters used in 2020, even if somehow we get a majority that endorses that argument, there's nothing about that that would call into question the bottom line results in 2020. The best that could be said is maybe it would have affected the margin in a couple of states.
Is there any universe in which you see five justices just rejecting this theory outright, done with it? I mean, that would be amazing. Um, <laughs> I'd love for that to be where this goes. It's hard to look at this court and imagine that there are five votes for the proposition that there are no circumstances where a state Supreme Court could act in a way regarding a federal election that would be immune from Supreme Court review. And so I think, you know, the reality is that the only way that happens, the only way we get a majority to reject the so-called independent state legislature theory is because they've been persuaded that there are other federal constitutional constraints that would come into play in a circumstance in which a state Supreme Court was truly behaving badly. I think what's more likely, June, is that they either leave open that question for another day or they find a way to say, you know, that's not even implicated here. You know, there are ways to say that this case doesn't properly present the question if they want to duck. But, you know, I think the sort of the two polar possibilities, either embracing the broad version of the doctrine or rejecting it outright, are actually probably the least likely two scenarios coming out of the argument. Just to clarify, because I know Neil Katyal, who was arguing for the voters who challenged the North Carolina map, said the blast radius from their theory would sow election chaos. So this theory could apply to anything the legislature decides to do, rules on mail-in ballots, absentee voting, anything. I mean, that's, you know, it depends on how far you go. But at its broadest, you know, taken literally, the independent state legislature theory would basically say that state constitutions are just about irrelevant when it comes to the rules that state legislatures set for federal elections. And that, you know, a state legislature can set a rule soon that might violate the federal constitution, but that there's no room for state Supreme Courts to strike down whether it's congressional districts or voting rules or anything of the like on the ground that it violates the state constitution. And that would have, obviously, dramatic consequences. There's a kernel out there about whether that would even allow a state legislature to throw out the results of a presidential election. I think there are ways to embrace the broad version of the theory without going quite that far. But, you know, the Overton window has already moved so much on this theory that I think it's not irrational for folks to be worried about that prospect. I thought, naively maybe, that after the backlash of the Dobbs decision taking away the constitutional right to abortion and the repercussions of that decision, that the conservatives might step back a little. But do the oral arguments so far this term indicate that the conservatives don't feel that constraint? Yeah, I don't think the conservatives are in any way chastened by the public backlash to the decision. I don't think they're chastened by the election result in which, you know, opposition to Dobbs might have actually allowed the Democrats to hold on to the Senate. At least so far, June, there's no evidence that the conservative justices have done anything to adopt or adapt their behavior in reaction to the shift in political winds. And I will just say, I mean, I think wholly unrelated to the substance of what the Supreme Court is doing, institutionally, I think that's alarming because over its history, the court has gotten into the most trouble in those periods when it has deemed itself least in conversation with the public, with the political branches, with the sort of shifting political ties, right? The court is not democratic. The court is not meant to be democratically accountable. But that's not the same thing as saying the court is therefore categorically immune 
from, you know, shifting political tides. And so I don't think there's any evidence that the justices are in any way shrinking from sort of the aggressiveness that we saw last term. And frankly, I think that's unfortunate, unrelated to the merits of these cases, just for the continuing health of the court as an institution, for public perception of the court as something other than just another font of partisan political power. Thanks so much, Steve. I always appreciate your insights. That's Professor Stephen Vladek of the University of Texas Law School. You know success when you see it. Or you think you do. The people in the spotlight. Athletes, actors, artists. But what about the people behind the scenes? You know, the ones who make it all happen. The lighting engineers, the sideline photographers, the caterers. They're small business masterminds. And if there's one thing they have in common, it's making their money work harder. That's why they have a business bank account with QuickBooks Money, where they are now earning a generous 5% annual percentage yield. Yes, 5% APY. Making your money work as hard as you do? That's how you business differently. Learn more about QuickBooks Money at quickbooks.com slash 5APY. Banking services provided by Green Dot Bank. Member FDIC. Only funds and envelopes earn APY. APY can change at any time. Hi, I'm Ron Kraszewski, Chairman and CEO of Stiefel. Financial Advisors, if you're not growing your practice, you're losing market share. Stiefel is a growing, entrepreneurial, advisor-centric firm built for successful advisors like you. Imagine having the resources of the largest wirehouses and the support of the boutique shops, but none of the bureaucracy to get in the way of you serving your clients. At Stiefel, it's your business, your book, your clients. I always tell the advisors we're recruiting, I want you to come to Stiefel and double or triple your business. Most of them laugh and shake their heads, but I'm serious. Don't take it from me. Take it from Stiefel's number one finish in J.D. Power's 2023 U.S. Financial Advisor Satisfaction Study. So there's a reason why 148 financial advisors joined Stiefel last year. Come join us and find out why Stiefel is the firm where success meets success. Visit www.choosestifel.com. Stiefel Nicholas and Company Incorporated, member SIPC and NYSE. Harvard's former fencing coach and a telecom CEO are facing a jury over charges they corrupted the admissions process in a case with echoes of the Varsity Blues bribery scandal. Joining me is Bloomberg legal reporter Laurel Calkins. So the prosecutors allege that there was a huge amount of money paid here, and it was paid in bits and pieces and in odd ways? Yes, it was paid in dribs and drabs by the Maryland Chinese-American businessman, whose name is Jack Zhao, and he allegedly paid the Harvard Fenton coach, Peter Brand, about at least a million and a half uh, in dribs and drabs, and it came in odd ways. Uh, it first was a payment to pay off the coach's mortgage for about, I don't know, 120000 And then it was bought the house. He overpaid by almost twice to get that. And then he bought the coach a Camaro. And then he helped him buy another house. And then he paid a, a contractor 150000 to remodel that. So you start adding all the little pieces up, and it, it comes in fairly large. But what's really interesting is it started out in a whole different way. These were direct payments for the coach's benefit. Initially, according to the prosecutors, the scheme was that Zhao would make a million-dollar contribution to a middleman's uh, fencing foundation, and the middleman would pass the million dollars on to a family foundation the coach had set up. Well, the middleman ended up keeping 90% of the money for himself, so they changed the scheme midstream, was the allegation. 
And what's the defense, the explanation for all that money? Generosity. The defense <laughs> says, you know, it's a cultural thing. The Zhao's are wealthy. They're, uh, they're from the Chinese tradition of being generous with their friends. And by the way, they say now, and they did not say this in any of the pretrial filings, but they told the jury on opening day, that this was all a loan that Peter Brand paid back with interest. And, of course, the prosecutors are going nuts. What do you mean? There's no evidence that it was ever repaid. And the jury was told or promised that they will be told that the coach got an inheritance from his mom recently and paid everything off with interest. Of course, that also happened after he was indicted. So, Key point there. <laughs> yeah, it's going to be interesting. The prosecution is actually trying to get the judge to say they have to take all that back and they can't tell any of that to the jury because it doesn't matter what happened after the indictment. So it's going to be interesting to see what happens. Now, the defense says Zhao's sons were nationally ranked fencers, outstanding athletes, and good students who were admitted on their own merit. But you never know with college admissions, and the (laughs) prosecution says that Zhao didn't want to take any chances that his son would be rejected. Exactly. And you also have to recognize that the two sons are not exactly equal. They both were uh, outstanding academics. They both had outstanding academics, which qualified under Harvard's admissions. And then they, they both were competitive fencers, shall we say. The elder son actually went on to become co-captain of Harvard's fencing team and was second string all Ivy. So he clearly was talented. The younger son also competed for Harvard. He racked up, you know, some honors, but not as much as his brother. But um, the other thing is with Harvard, unlike some of the other colleges, the coach can't just say, this is my recruit, and they automatically get in. Harvard has a kind of a whole student evaluation process, and there's an interview and a committee process. So it very much tips the scale in your favor, but it's not a, a deadlock. So I think Zhao was trying to, to tilt that scale as much in his son's favor as possible. But a big point in the trial is going to be, was Harvard harmed? Because the Zhao's technically qualified for admissions on their own merit, Uh, They fenced competitively for Harvard all four years that each boy was there, and they both paid full tuition. They didn't get any scholarships, believe it or not. So it's a question. Did Harvard get harmed? Who's the victim here? If this is a bribery case, why isn't it enough to prove bribery? Why do they have to prove what's called honest services fraud? You know, it's kind of a a murky area to me. Um, There's so many different varieties of honest services fraud, and I I haven't quite parsed through exactly. (laughs) The the Supreme Court's parsing through it now, so. Well, I I know. And the thing is, is there's like 20 different flavors of that. And I know that some of them, if if you're, I'm going to date myself here, dating back to the Enron days, some of the prosecutions of the investment bankers in uh, the Enron prosecutions were overturned on honest services fraud because it's still murky. And I think you have to have a victim. And that's why it's become a point in the trial is, was Harvard actually a victim of what was Harvard defrauded? So it's going to be interesting to see how it unfolds. Did the prosecution say in the opening statements how Harvard was harmed? Uh, Not specifically. They just kind of, you know, it was kind of the theory that these kids would not have been admitted on their own. As you know, in opening statements, you get kind of the 30,000-foot overview, and then you wait for the case to unfold. The very first uh, witness was the middleman who testified yesterday. He was the guy who kept the 90% of the first bribe for himself. So he received a non-prosecution agreement in order to turn state's evidence against the coach and the businessman, the dad. And so, uh, (laughs) you know, as somebody described it to me, he has more baggage than a Greyhound bus. (laughs) 
And, you know, the jury's going to have to make their determination as to whether they believe this guy or if they believe the defense, which is, hey, he's the criminal. He's the only evidence that there's any kind of a plot between these two friends who, by the way, have a net zero on the balance sheet between them. So classic cut and dry. Classic flipped witness. And do you know what happened to that? I mean, he was never prosecuted. Nothing happened for him, admittedly, taking 90% of that? Yeah, yeah that's, a, that's a, key, a key point. With a non-prosecution deal, you have to complete your part before you then go before the judge and the prosecution says, he fulfilled his part, you can sentence him to nothing. You know, there kind of has to be a fulfillment of the contract by the witness. So... <laughs> If he doesn't succeed in convincing the jury, I still think he doesn't get prosecuted, but it doesn't mean the, the prosecutors won't get creative with something else. But um, I think the thing that overhangs this entire trial is this same Boston U.S. Attorney's Office is the one that brought us the Operation Varsity Blues, which was the nationwide uh, in college admissions scandal run by a consultant named Rick Singer, and that was where people, uh, where, where wealthy and celebrity parents paid very easy-to-track bribes where they either had people cheat to get their, children, uh, their children's admission scores changed on tests or they, got, uh, they paid to have their children recruited as athletes for sports they sometimes never even played. So the Boston area is very well steeped in this whole idea of rich parents were buying their kids way into college and they can't unhear that you know they can't not know that and i think they're supposed to just put it aside and say because the prosecution has been very careful not to mention varsity blues in this case uh, because i think they don't want any taint to come in on that but it's the gorilla in the room all the same even though these parents and this coach have no connection whatsoever to the to the players in the varsity blues uh scandal it's still in the room. I don't think Harvard was one of those schools involved no. in the Parsi Boos. No, Yale was, and uh, most of USC uh, was the big center of it over in California. But it went all over the place. I mean, I think there was a UT, a University of Texas. There were more than 50 wealthy parents and, and celebrity parents that were ensnared in that one. So it's just kind of hard not to have that in the back of their mind for the jury. Besides this main witness, the star witness, they do have emails from Brand to Zhao. Well, actually, uh, the emails that are the most damning for the coach are the ones between the middleman and the coach, where the coach is telling the middleman, whose name is uh, Alexander Rijek, the Zhao boys don't have to be great fencers. I just need an incentive to recruit them he says, in one. And then another one, he says, that student will be my number one recruit if my future is secured. Well, that doesn't look very good. The <laughs> optics there are very bad. Laurel, the prosecutor gave something of a motive during opening statements. The prosecution told the jury in opening statements they will be producing evidence that uh, Coach Brand's family was financially struggling before they met the Zows. And so, you know, did the Zows just generously help out this guy? Who knows for sure? But the coach's financial situation for his family did turn around. The amounts of money talked about here are sort of astonishing to me. I mean, that came out in testimony yesterday. There was some email traffic that alluded to an unrelated party, uh, a different uh, Chinese businessman having paid 
seven, seven and a half million dollars to uh, ensure his child's uh, admission to an elite university. And so Brand uh, allegedly took that as his benchmark. Well, if that worked for one family, it's going to work for me. Now, they're going to have to prove that, but they rolled that out through the middleman witness yesterday. One wonders why they don't just give donations to the school in order to get their kid in because, you well, know. The, the reason there is that none of that would flow to the coach. If they just donated to the Harvard fencing team, they would look great to the Harvard fencing team, but it wouldn't necessarily boost their son's chances of admission. And the coach said, I can put my finger on the scale, but you got to make it worth my while. The thing that's, a, that's really fascinated me about the whole Varsity Blues thing, and again, there is no connection between these defendants and the actual Varsity Blues scandal. But what always fascinated me about Varsity Blues as a scandal was you know, we all know that college admissions are rigged to some extent. I mean, it's been an open secret for generations that alumni kids get better treatment, that the families of donors' kids get better treatment. It's just, <laughs> it was just kind of brought down to uh, the masses through that scheme. And this is just kind of an ancillary add-on. And we're seeing now some of the varsity, uh, I guess we had most of the varsity blues parents plead guilty to something and, and receive very light sentences in the scheme of things for either just fines and probations, or they had to spend a few weeks to a few months in jail. There's a couple now, the first two that were convicted of two different parents, wealthy parents, who are actually appealing their convictions. And they said, uh, the jury form confused the jurors. And so our convictions should be overturned. We should be retried. And then there's another, the USC water polo coach is actually going to get a new trial after he was convicted on similar concerns. So these are a little bit hard to prove than, harder to prove than people think, but it may be more of a legal problem than an actual evidence problem. We wait, we wait to see. And the ringleader has yet to be sentenced in that case. Correct. It's been going Correct. on forever and he's not been sentenced. <laughs> no, he was supposed to be sentenced, I think this month was his most recent date. And now he's been pushed to right after the first of the year. I think he's in the first week of the new year, unless they postpone it again. I don't know. Maybe now that these other cases, this one case is going to be retried against the USC water polo coach, they may want to give him further incentive to continue to cooperate. So we may see that delayed again. So how long is this current trial expected to last? It was originally expected to last right up to the weekend before uh, Christmas, which (laughs) prosecutors usually bend over backwards to keep from seating a jury in December because they're afraid that the jurors will feel sympathy for the for the perpetrators and say, ah, now it wasn't that bad, and we'll let them off. And I but, want to get home to trim my Christmas tree. Exactly. So you generally don't see big jury trials in December, so it's kind of unusual that this one is, is happening then. And the judge had originally set a schedule that the jury was only going to be there half days, and they've already decided that's not wise. So they're speeding it up, and I think they're going to try and complete within two weeks instead of three. So they're aiming to be done with a verdict before the weekend of Christmas, and I guarantee you they're going to flog it to get there because they do not want this jury's Christmas wrecked. So we'll see what happens. Thanks so much, Laurel. That's Bloomberg legal reporter Laurel Calkins. And that's it for this edition of the Bloomberg Law Show. Remember, you can always get the latest legal news on our Bloomberg Law podcast. You can find them on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and at www.bloomberg.com slash podcast slash law. And remember to tune into the Bloomberg Law Show every weeknight at 10 p.m. Wall Street time. I'm June Grosso, and you're listening to Bloomberg. It can be hard to see the challenges that people we work with every day are going through. 
I'm Holly Robinson-Pete. Join us on The Visibility Gap, a new podcast presented by Cigna Healthcare. Download it wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Alex Rodriguez. And I'm Jason Kelly. From Bloomberg, this is The Deal. Each week, you're here as in conversation with business icons. This show will explore deal-making across sports, media, and entertainment. That is a harsh lesson in business. Sports is and not as simple you know, as bringing a bunch of big names together. I didn't want to do another stomp you out speech. It opened so up so many more doors. The show is called The, the deal. deal. Listen to The Deal wherever you get your podcast, And watch on Bloomberg Originals, Bloomberg Television, or BTV+. Plus.